This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sandy Hunt, along and I'm, with... And I'm Cheryl Coolman. And we are excited to welcome you back here to Dollars and Change. We're having a great conversation today, starting with a conversation about the zoo, the Philadelphia Zoo, and the multifaceted impact it has on its community, its animals, and its guests. Then we moved into a, a great conversation with Miranda Wang, who's the CEO and co-founder of BioSelection. Um... Uh, as as delightful and um, inspiring of an alumni story as one could hope to hear. Yeah. Well, and actually, yeah, they're both alums. Uh, I hadn't quite processed that. But no, I think it was well, one of the things that was really great, and we always love talking uh, with Vic, is really how he, he, he was a you know, banker yeah. and, and had come out of that background. The zoo was looking for somebody not from the zoo community, and they wanted somebody different, and and they hired Vic, and and just sort of seeing how he used some business thinking uh, in adapting the the financial model, getting security around that, thinking about innovation, taking what you have and deciding what to add. It's 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 very interesting, and also the question about having to, you know. If you bring something new in, you've got to get rid of something else. Yeah. could talk to him all day about it. And, you know, even the nuance of, you know, I wonder how it was received when he came in and said our first responsibility is making sure our revenues can cover our yeah. operating expenses. You know, how how is the board and how is the staff responding? That must have seemed very like, whoa, you bring in this banker and now we're focused on the bottom Money. line. And yeah. But, you know, you see the long game and the vision he has for you know, what opportunity that opens up. So a very, very cool segment. And uh, one we'll look forward to recapping further in our open segment at the end here. But let me pivot to our third guest today. Andy Behar is the CEO of As You Sew. Um, as I mentioned, I had a chance to see one of their new products launch in mm-hmm, London mm-hmm. at the Gender Smart Investing Summit. So I'm excited to tell our guests all about that. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So let's start with... What as you so is in the most um, accessible and digestible language because I don't want our listeners to hear shareholder activism and switch to pits one um, <laughs> because it might be too Got dry. It. Help us get excited and and get familiar with this work. Great. Well, we help big companies make big changes in environmental, social, and governance issues. We've been around since 1992. And we work with the biggest corporations in the world to really help them reduce their risk and to get ahead of some of the issues that are uh, that they may not even realize that they are involved in, but they are causing problems in the environment and social issues. And what's the business model here? Is it that you know companies look to you, or that you rally shareholders in the company? Tell us a little bit about where the the pressure comes from. Sure, we're a nonprofit, so we basically gather shareholders and say, "Look, there's a big issue happening here. Let's just say it's um, antibiotics in meat." And so we go and we talk to McDonald's and Wendy's and KFC, and they all agreed that uh, to stop using antibiotics in their chicken. We got Duncan and Starbucks to stop using, uh, well, in the case of Duncan, a billion styrofoam cups a year, and Starbucks three billion straws because they're impacting ocean plastics. So we talk to the big companies, we get shareholders organized, we say, look, this is a big risk to your brand, and then they respond by saying, okay, let's see how we can fix it, and we help them do that. And 
That's a delightful narrative. Is it ever the case that the response is, you know, sure, we know that, but it doesn't make sense for us to change our behavior? We present them with business models that show them that it's actually huh. almost always in their, most, in their best interest for all their stakeholders, for their employees, for their customers, for their shareholders, to actually really work with integrity on, on solving these problems, that it it's just makes their brands um, shine and attracts more business and really impacts the bottom line in a very positive way. And what is, what is it that you're bringing to the table in those business models and, and what you're presenting that those companies hadn't seen themselves? Because I'm thinking, you know, you're naming huge companies, you know, Dunkin', McDonald's, Starbucks. They've got very smart executives, and yet you're bringing something illuminating to them. Is it consideration of, you know, consumer preferences that you have a special, you know, um, perspective on? Is it the time horizon, social trends? Tell us what the... Um, you know, what the think, unique perspective is that as you so brings to these folks. You know, I think shareholders have a really unique perspective. They really can see long term. They want the companies to thrive in the long term. And so they're pointing out stuff that the companies just may not quite realize is as big a risk as, as it is. I mean, in the examples I gave you, when we approached Wendy's, KFC, and Burger King, McDonald's around antibiotics in their meat products, uh, they they knew it was on the horizon, but they didn't realize that this was a big issue and a really important one, a material issue for shareholders. And once they saw that, and they saw that that the, that the shift was not as difficult as they thought, and in terms of changing their supply chain, then um, they could now be be part of that of, of solving a problem. And the consumers, our customers, really appreciate that. So uh, I'm thinking chicken and egg uh, situation here. Do you identify some of these issues and then um, test them out with with uh, shareholders to see if if it's important for them, or are these issues raised by the shareholders and then you just help to um, f- make companies aware of it and and of the shareholder passion behind it? We generally start by doing some deep research. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at an entire at, at a sector. We'll look at an issue. So, for instance, when we got involved back in 2008 around hydraulic fracturing, we were looking at issues around water, and we were bringing that to to the company. So it's more like we're doing the research. Mm-hmm. We started our research on plastics, ocean plastics, and back in 2006, actually, we published our first report. We've done reports on. Uh, for instance, glyphosate, that's Roundup, in, in the food system. We published that, showing that people are being exposed to this, this toxic pesticide in almost all the food that they're eating. So it starts with really core research, then analyzing which companies are doing what on that issue, mm-hmm. and then separating the leaders from the laggards. Generally, there's a company that's out in advance, and there's companies that are just dragging their feet. And so we'll go talk to the ones dragging their feet, and start to make that a public issue. And they start to see, okay, we're losing competitive, the competitive pressure is a lot of what drives them as well. And Andy, how do you trend spot so far in advance right. and That's sort of say, thinking, here, right. you know, here's what's coming or here's what's of interest? Are they <laughs> consumer focus groups, market trends? Are you just genuinely that much smarter than I am? <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but I, I, my, my staff is really pretty amazing. We have really incredible issue experts that just have their, they're reading academic studies. They're reading uh, constantly just, just in touch with experts in the field, um, both on the scientific side, on the legal side. 
Uh, so, you know, like, for instance, Conrad McCarran, who's been doing this for 20 years on ocean plastics, he knows everything there is to know about recycling and how all the companies actually operate. He's really deep in the weeds on this. Um, our, our person, uh, Christy Spees, who's working on the antibiotics issue and the glyphosate issue, again, just, just this is a ton of experience. And, um, and Danielle Fougere, who, who runs our programs, is just, she's an, an environmental attorney, and she's been doing this for decades. So uh, we're doing deep research, and we're talking to very, very smart um, researchers and really just, I think the companies could be seeing this, but they're busy being companies and you know producing products and so as shareholders we feel like we should be looking out for this risk and we should be helping them to avoid the risk yeah and i i mean we we certainly have to second uh that sentiment which is there is a lot of stuff that is known but it is buried in yeah. long academic reports um and and we can pivot to, in a little bit and talk about <clears throat> both of our work around gender but you know this is one of those things where you you have some sort of uh, commonly accepted thoughts uh, about <clears throat> women on boards or whatever. And then you have a huge body of academic literature, but it's not accessible to right. everyone, both right. in cost, availability, and just sheer um, consumer time. You can't expect consumers to, to read a huge volume and understand a huge volume of literature, especially when you're talking about something like you know, the the chemicals, you know, there's a huge technical expertise to even understanding that literature if you could get your hands on it. True. Um, and when you mentioned gender, and one of the interesting things around <clears throat> gender equality, and, and we did meet at the Gender Smart Summit in, in London when we were introducing gender equality funds, is that, and, and this is more broad, that people who have investing, are investing in their retirement in a 401k plan. They're generally in mutual funds. And most people, I'd say 90% of people, don't have a clue what is inside those funds. No they have no idea. Oh, it's got to be closer to 100%. I would say. I mean, so, so people 100% of sanding me. <laughs> their value set says, I think climate change is a real problem, and yet they own Exxon and Chevron mm -hmm. and, and all the big coal-fired utilities, and they don't even know it. Uh, with gender equality, people say, I believe in gender equality, yet they don't realize that they're holding companies that have, some, some of them have no gender policy at all. Some have just terrible policies on uh, for equal pay, for equal work. They have, it's, it's what's, that's what's amazing to me. And so that's why we started building all these transparency tools. It started with the fossil fuel one, fossilfreefunds.org. And that was back when people wanted to divest and they didn't even know what they owned. Right. And then it expanded into we started working on weapons, parkland shooting. People said, I don't want to own all these assault rifles. Yep. They didn't know that they were actually holding them in their 401k. So we made these tools. They're free. They're simple to use. You just type in the name of a mutual fund or a ticker and tells you exactly what you own. Yeah, and I want to I want to weapons. Oh, good. Sorry, put good. to pause to underscore this for our listener. So this is the process. You go online. You go to as you so. They've got a bunch of tools. You open that paper that comes in the mail or you go online to your portal where you've got your your 401k and your mutual funds or you call that 1-800 number. You get those ticker symbols. Three letters. Three, right? Alpha three alphas. Usually five, five letters, letters. like and, and you know, you... like 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 a women's phone would be like PXWIX or WOMN. Now, like there, there's sometimes they're three, four, okay. five, and you yeah. type them in, and the as you so tool will, based on its screening methodology, give you scores and insights into what you're invested in. 
it, with great specificity. If you care about weapons, you'll know whether you own nuclear weapons, cluster munitions, landmines, or assault weapons. In the case of, of women and, and gender, you're going to know if it's about women on the board, women in the C-suite, whether they have sexual harassment policies, whether they have um, just all, all kinds of, of issues that are really nuanced and that companies need to get ahead of. And, and what's interesting on gender is the companies are just starting to, uh, to, to actually disclose this information. Right. And that's yeah. what's really important to investors, is they want disclosure. We want, we want transparency on material issues. And that's why we file a lot of these shareholder resolutions. It's a formal request asking companies, please tell us what about these material issues. And oftentimes the companies will actually write a report and put it out there on their website. Other times they're very resistant. Um, in the case of gender, we're having actually a lot of trouble getting the companies to just tell us what their policies are on equal pay. Yeah. And is it is your suspicion or, or insight that it is because the policies don't exist or because they're embarrassing and they don't want to share them? Hard to say, but right now they're getting bad scores because they just refuse to disclose. Oh, yep. So if we, we assume the worst and... Um, you know, going back to the plastics, when we f- published our first report in 2006 and the companies had no recycling policies, they all got bad grades, which woke them up. And they said, oh, my God, we need policies. We need practices. We need to actually get ahead of this. Yep, yep. So same thing with gender. We just, just launched it last November, and we're expecting the second round of data. We work with a group called Equileap mm-hmm. that gathers 12 key performance metrics for each of 4,000 companies on gender, we aggregate those up for the mutual fund. So if you have a fund that's the S&P 500, we're looking at 12 data points on 500 companies and aggregating that all up so you get one score for your mutual fund and you can compare fund to fund as well as how their financial uh, performance is. So it's not just gender, it's you're looking at what's their gender score, what's their performance, you can compare funds side by side as apples to apples as you can get. Yeah, and on one hand, uh, tools like these help. Um, they're very informative, and they're and they're relatively easy. But still, this investing um, with with um, your your passion and your values can be very complex. We, you know, when we were doing the work on on our, our four for women and, and understanding some gender stuff, you know, we would have these internal debates. Let's say you got this gun company that nevertheless is great for women, right? Yep. It's, it's possible, and then then you have to decide how do I how do I balance those two different those two different approaches and two different values. So it it um, being an aware investor is important, but it's it's still fairly challenging. Yeah, and I, I, my my call to action, I think for for all listeners, is like yes, it is very challenging and it is very complex, and you will likely be met with some of those scenarios that Charles highlighting yeah. where you know bad for whales, good for women. Mm-hmm bad for guns, good for whales, you know, all these different dimensions of the business, but at least no, yeah. you know, and this is what I like so much about the As You Sow tools is that they really meet, um, and, you know, and I say investors, but I don't want people to tune out. People who have retirement plans, you know, people who have some invested capital, this is not for the Gates family only. This is, no, this to... is 90 million people with eight and a half trillion dollars in assets, and they don't have a clue what yep. they own. Yep. And, and the heartbreaking thing is, you know, some of these people are out spending every free minute of their time 
dedicated to some nonprofit of their mm-hmm. choice around an issue area. And yet their investment dollars are and, going and against it. And their investment it. dollars yep. might be, you know, they literally might be invested in the things they're picketing or, <laughs> right. you know, tweeting against. Also, foundations that are funding climate change, they have a 401k or a 403b plan for their employees that doesn't offer anything fossil free. Yep. Oh, that, yeah. That's what we're finding is that these these plans are really, they're just completely opaque, that that Wall Street has managed to create a black box around these plans that just don't let people look in. And I agree with you 100% that it's so much better to be making those decisions that sometimes may be somewhat contradictory, may, but to do it from an informed place, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to invest with intention, aligned with your values, with, with information, rather than just being kind of afraid of it and and, and being completely kept in the dark. So that's what we're just trying to shine a bright light on it. And we do show the complexity of it because, for instance, in Fossil Free, and we found this, that people said, I want to get out of the 200 biggest oil companies, the companies with reserves. Well, other people said, but that means that I'm still owning coal-fired utilities right. and I'm still yeah. owning oil field services. So we put all that in. And you can, you can, look, you can choose how you define Fossil Free. It's not, there's no one right way. There's, there's five different, we give five different badges, a badge for not having big companies with reserves, a badge for no coal-fired utilities, a badge for no oil field services. And you can decide. It's, there's, we say there's no right or wrong. It's just do it with, with an informed state of mind. Yeah, and, and that's and the way to think about it, too, is also it's, you don't have to be perfect in your investments, but you can get better, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all about just being more informed, being a little bit better, and, and kind of understanding understanding where you are. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, yeah, and again, most of us don't don't know and don't realize that there's tools that can make this easy. Because, uh, you know, if you're just trying to look for the names of the companies, and it's, it gets hard. You might, you know. Yeah, yesterday I, I had a call from a woman who just called me and said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, let me just help you through it. And we looked, and she had a great portfolio. She was, like, just incredibly so, socially responsible um, and really good returns from th- these um, different mutual funds. There was one mutual fund, though, that had one company that was a major military contractor, and it also was almost dead last on gender. So in this one fund, this fund manager has one company that got them a low score on weapons and on gender, but otherwise it was, like, pristine. So we're going to write to that fund manager. And we talk to fund managers all the time. They call us up and say, why did I get such a bad score? And we're like, well, you bought Gazprom. You know, that's <laughs> why you have such a high carbon footprint. Um, interesting. And it's, it's interesting that the fund managers are very surprised at what's in their fund. And, again, we update this once a month because fund managers change. They're buying and selling all the time. So we've seen it where fund managers, we had a conversation with them, and then the next month when we do a recrunch, uh, that fund just jumped up in its score wow. because they sold those. Like, sometimes it's a tiny portion of the portfolio. It's 0.1%, and they just didn't realize it. They sold it. They get a better score. And now people are saying, oh, wow, that's a much better fund. Yeah. And the, and the other thing I want to make sure folks understand or think about and consider is, you know, sharing your opinion and your perspective, even if the money doesn't move can be powerful. So, you know, to your point, if you work at a foundation that is, you know, some environmental organization and you don't have a fossil fuel free 
option in the retirement portfolio yeah. that your company's providing you, call and say, I don't like that. Because, you know, these these are respond you know, these these businesses are responsive to consumer demand. Yeah. And so and the foundation may not know. Your employer may not realize that there are no options around that. Yep. And so just a quick reminder to our listeners, you are listening to Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel one thirty two. We are talking to Andy Behar, CEO of As You So, and trying to convince all of you that it is not as scary or as daunting as you think. To possibly, you know, understand what investments you're holding. And it's kind of, it's actually kind of fun <laughs> to look and sort of realize that, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, on, on our sites, on, on, on weapon-free funds and gender equality funds, um, we have a toolkit for how do you talk to your 401k manager? Because a lot of people are intimidated by that, to just knock on the door of their HR department and say, you know, I signed a pledge, a, um, a divest fossil fuel pledge, but there's nothing that I can buy in the 401k plan. Can you help me? When you approach it that way and talk to some of your friends, other employees, and come together or write a letter, just say, can you help us with this? I really care about gender equality, but everything in our, in, that you're offering us has a really low score. What do we do? Those people don't get a lot of visitors, i got to tell you. <laughs> and when they get a visitor who comes and says, can you help me? There's so many solutions. I mean, there's literally thousands of fossil-free funds that are great ones. There's thousands of good ones for on gender. Companies are really making this shift, and in particular on gender. They're seeing that, that in order to attract the best talent and retain the best talent, they need really good gender, um, gender equality policies and practices. And they're going to they're gonna feel this, this, this weight of... of People of investors really demanding this. Well, and, and, and I, I think that's a, a great wave point. that will be a tsunami very, very soon. Yes, I think that's a, a great point that you raise because it's um, given the the focus we've had. It's easy to think about this as as stuff that investors or people with four hundred one ks and four hundred three bs care about. But a lot of the things that you're pointing to are things that employees care about, right? You know, and so that part of this is the company being good for investors and for employees. And, and retracting and keeping talent is, is going to become increasingly um, a challenge and difficult. because It's the number one yeah. cost for businesses. Yeah, they're and, willing to walk retracting away. Retracting and, and retaining talent is the number one cost for businesses. And so it actually, we make this case to companies. We go in and, and you'll say, look, this is your number one cost. And, and so the ROI, the return on investment, of actually having environmental, social, and governance funds in their 401k plan becomes a major attractor. And it's, it's really important for the companies to realize this, how easy it is also to change their plan. A lot of times what we hear is it's impossible. We can't change uh, our right, plan. Right. It's been like that for years. I can tell you this. My organization, you know, now we're a small, we're, we're a not-for-profit, but we, were, we completely re just changed our 401k, when we became aware of this, um, when we were building fossil-free funds, we realized our 401k plan was full of fossil fuels, and we were out there you know, working with all, you know, all the big oil <laughs> companies. It took us about three months to, oh, wow. to actually to figure out what we had, to figure out where we wanted to go, to, to meet with our advisors, and, um, and then to, to make the shift. It's not rocket science. And also, just adding another fund that's very, very simple because most plans have 
let's just say 15 to 20 funds. We've seen some with 80, some with six, but there's no right number that we seem to see. Right. Um, so adding one the, is usually not a huge well, issue. Well, you add yeah. a gender fund, you add like, like you know, PXWIX, which is just rocks it on gender. You add a couple of fossil-free funds from, you know, from Green Century or from Parnassus or, you know, from um, Portfolio 21, Trillium. And now people are happy. They're like, oh, now I have an option that, that works with my values. And the company feels good. They send out an email saying we're adding a few things to our 401k plan. Everybody goes, wow, they're really they're listening to us. They're thinking about the value set of our company and, and our employees. So it's not that difficult, and the benefits are so huge. So we're always presenting this ROI discussion with, with company management and saying, why don't we just do this? Yeah, with good reason. Um, Andy, talk to us a little bit about how you quantify the risks of some of these social issues to the organization. So when, you know, straw plastic or, you know, gender diversity and leadership beyond the your consumers and employees want it, are you talking to these companies about the sort of social tsunamis you referenced? Like, mm. you know, this is going to be headline stuff soon or look at what happened to, you know, X, Y, Z when they, when they sort of turned a blind eye towards this. Um, is that a part of the conversation? And, and if so, you know, how do you put those together? Well, the world kind of is, there's a dividing line in, in this, in the world. Consumer facing companies, they, when their brand is associated with some negative action, negative policy that they have taken, they want to fix it when they hear about it. Like when you talk to Dunkin' Donuts about, hey, you know, look at all this styrofoam. It's destroying the ocean. And you can, you can easily shift to a recycled cardboard cup, and they test it and find that their customers love it. They can make that shift, you know, and suddenly a billion styrofoam cups are not being produced in 2019. So they can solve, get ahead of that problem. The other side of that is the oil and gas industry, where associating negative things with their brands well, it's just so, it goes so deep that right. they just don't seem to really care about that because their brands are associated with, well, with climate change, with destruction of, you know, the planet and, um, and civil society. So you can't really, that's not really something that they put in their calculations. So when we talk to them about climate change, and we have been filing resolutions with Exxon, Chevron, Anadarko, Hess, all the major oil companies, and not just us. There's a whole coalition of people who are doing this, um, you know, through all the faith-based groups, through a group called ICCR, and mm-hmm. Ceres is organizing this. So there's, there's just tons of people working on this. The discussions we have, though, with, with Exxon and Chevron is really about transition planning and about how you're going to get ahead of the curve here. Look at what happened to the coal industry. They had demand assumptions. And in, in the course of between 2015, three years later, they're, I mean, they're just, I mean, well, in 2012, I guess we wrote, 2011, we wrote our first report on the financial risks of investing in coal. And five years later, the 80% of the value of the coal industry was just gone, just value destruction. So we see similar things happening in the oil industry, and we see that they are just continuing ahead with business as usual and pretty much ignoring um, shareholders that even with a majority vote at Exxon to publish a, a report on how they're going to have a Paris-compliant transition plan, they basically gave us a five-degree report. They just said, we're going to suck every last drop out of the ground and burn the planet to the ground. <laughs> and 
And that is not a good way to yeah. treat a majority of your shareholders. I mean, 62% of shareholders voted for that resolution. So we're not seeing a great deal of respect for shareholders from the oil companies, and we think that they are really at risk. We actually question how viable a lot of these companies are. They are their debt is every year they're borrowing more money. Every year give, they continue to give out dividends and buy back stock to keep their stock prices stable. Um, we're looking at it and going, this is a house of cards. This is really a dangerous situation. If you read the Carbon Tracker Institute Carbon Bubble Report, which is, uh, they've, they've done like, I don't even know how many reports, like 50 reports, but their very first one was called the Carbon Bubble. And that looked at just how is this going to actually play out? And ultimately that there's this $20 trillion bubble in the economy, because these companies, if they were to extract all of the oil, gas, and coal that's on their balance sheets, it would raise the temperature of the planet to five degree, by five degrees C. It would essentially do everything that the UN report says, which is just basically wipe out civil society and all our food systems. And so they're going to have to leave about 80% of it in the ground, and yet it's on their balance sheet. It's an so asset, yeah. It's part of their assets, but it's not really an asset because they'll never be able to commercialize it. So there's a massive bubble, and the, the oil industry we see is a very, very risky investment. We, that's why we got involved with the whole idea of divestment, just to protect your assets. And the big pension funds, they're still, they're still hedging on it, yet seven, over $7 trillion of assets under management has signed a divest fossil fuel pledge. $7.5 trillion of, 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 um, of asset owners, and so yet still the big pension funds, are, they're still in, um, but we think there's going to be a rush for the, for the you know, just rats, like rats from a sinking ship. Um, so we are very, um, you know, bearish on, on oil and gas, and also because they just simply won't talk to shareholders. We've been telling them this and having these conversations for years, but they don't seem to be responding. They just continue business as usual. They're continuing to plow more and more money into um, looking for more oil and gas reserves, which we say are just going to be stranded. They're going to become stranded assets. So sorry about the length of that. Yeah, no. And I think what's but, interesting about that point is that you're, you're moving it beyond the, the sort of moral argument mm-hmm. into sort of saying, no, but because of, of a lot of these issues, this is not a good financial investment. If you're keeping it in your portfolio because you think that it's, it's going to bring good returns, you're wrong. There's some questions. Well, yeah. Over 10 years, if you compare over the last 10 years, the, the funds that have kept the oil companies have underperformed the, the market, the benchmarks. And the ones that, that dropped the fossil fuels have outperformed the benchmark. It's just like, it's, it's just night and day. If you just, just look at the numbers, there's no reason that, um, I mean, some of these pension funds, we told them, and, and also universities, all these students saying, Harvard, please divest these fossil yeah. fuels because you're in the business of, of the future. Harvard said, we won't sell because we, are, we don't want to lose money. Yet, from that day when the students, and we know the students, we were there with them, they lost $3.5 billion. Um, that they could have, that they, had they divested, they would have $3.5 billion more dollars in their portfolio. And what that calculates out to is it's like $160,000 per student that they have lost wow. by staying with the oil companies. And we look at this, and the students, and we go, what, 
who is the fiduciary making this decision? Don't you see that these are underperforming massively? Uh, what is your rationale? And they don't have one. I was just going to say, what's their response there? Well, the the resp- I think the response is, typically from universities is our, our responsibility on the endowment is to get as much uh, return as possible. Right, but if so he's pointing out that's not... In this case, they're not, losing as much yeah. as possible. It's the same thing with these big pension funds. You know, we, we just published a report um, last, I guess, last November at the Global Climate Action Summit. We released it. That was called 2020, A Vision for the Future. And we did an analysis. We looked at um, how, how have these pension funds that stayed in the oil companies, how have they done? And you know, we cited New York State and you know, showed that they lost, I believe it was in the $16 billion that they left on the table by, by not divesting. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm a pensioner, if my money, if I'm contributing to that pension fund and the fiduciaries there are making these decisions to continue to hold underperforming um, stocks, I have to question why. Right. And I, I don't understand it because we talk to them. They say they're doing it because they're doing engagement and that the companies are changing. We don't see the companies changing. So it's a, that's a big problem. So oil and gas is one thing. On the other side, though, companies with consumer brands, we find that they, while they might not, you know, we knock on the door and say, we think that you guys have a problem. They might not always just throw open the door and say, let's sit down and figure it out. Sometimes we have to um, escalate to, you know, a shareholder resolution. So what starts, we start with an engagement. We start with a friendly call or a letter. If they don't want to talk about the issue that we have prepared, then we file a formal, a formal thing, which is a, a shareholder resolution, which means it's a 500-word document that we file. And now that's going to be voted on at the annual meeting. So that generally gets their attention to sit down and have a conversation. If they're willing to work on it, we could withdraw that. If they don't want to work on it, then it goes to a vote. And that's why we you know, have these sometimes these majority votes. And then we organize shareholders around the issue. So this year we've, um, we have about, uh, I think it's about 60 different shareholder resolutions on a variety of topics, including slavery in supply chain. We've been filing, talking to companies about, you have known slavery in your supply chain. How do you like... Why do you have that associated with your brand? Why don't you clean up your supply chain? And we get various answers. I've got to tell you, some companies just say, we just don't think that's an important issue. Um, and so we show up at the annual meeting, and we present to the, to the board, and that leads to further discussions. And sometimes these take years and years, but we're very tenacious. And shareholder people who are working in this area, shareholder advocates, tend to be a very tenacious bunch we work with a lot of the faith-based groups, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. We work with a broad spectrum of investors to bring about change on really important social issues. Um, one other issue we, we do, every year we write a report called the 100 Most Overpaid CEOs of the S&P 500. Uh-huh. And we have a, an expert on staff, Rosanna Landis-Weaver, who's been doing this for decades again. And she publishes, she writes this report where we do this deep analysis and here's the interesting thing that we found after doing this, that'll be our fifth year this year, is if you take the S&P 500 and you remove the top 10 most overpaid CEOs, the companies that are overpaying their CEOs, that, that those 10 are underperforming, are creating underperformance. That those are, if you take, take those groups, they're underperforming sometimes by 5 
Um, it's remarkable that the most overpaid CEOs are the are, are underperforming the most. It's it's completely counterintuitive. Yeah, this but, is. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I apologize, Andy, to interrupt, but we are we're coming to the end of our segment here. So sure. I want to make sure that for our listeners who are you know uh, all ears and furiously trying to take notes or in their car, devastated that they can't at the moment, point us towards the appropriate websites. Sure, as you sow, as in so shall ye reap. S-O-W. S-O-W. And, right, and if you're trying to, um, if you're looking for the uh, gender equality funds, it's, we, we put them all, so fossil-free funds, gender, and weapons, it's all under invest your values. It's right on the main front page. There's a big box with a picture that says invest your values. If you click there, then there's links to all of those other sub-sites um, so you can get at it. But as you sow, and you can look at you know, all the different um, all the different work that we're doing in the different program areas. Great. Andy, thank you so much. A reminder to all of our listeners for, you know, that you've got assets out there and they're, they're making a difference, good, bad, or ugly. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.